Welcome back to Case of the Sunday Scaries. I'm Elise. And I'm Annie. And before we get started today, I had one of our Scary Squad members write us, and they had a correction for last week's episode that I definitely want to address. I said that Alec took the phone from Maggie when Gloria Satterfield fell down the steps. He did not. It was actually the son, Paul, that was on the phone. She was right. Thank you for letting me know. However, this mistake on my part, of course, it's me, made me do a little further research. And it ended up showing yet again what Alec is willing to do and the lies that he is willing to tell. Because the part I reported that he had said that Gloria had fallen down the stairs and told him that the dogs tripped her. He did say that when he talked to police about the incident. However, an eyewitness at the scene says that Alec was not even at home when Gloria fell. So how did she say this to him when Paul and Maggie both say on the 911 calls multiple times that she was unable to speak or make complete sentences? We are always open to correction. We welcome it. So thank you to that listener for pointing this out to me. We have a lot to cover today. I have like my number two pencil. I feel like I'm taking the SAT. Like I'm going to jot down notes. This is a lot of information. So we ended last episode with Alex's call to the 911 dispatch on the night of June 7th, 2021. So what in the world happened to Maggie and Paul? According to Alec, he came home around 5 p.m. the evening of the 7th, had dinner with his family, then fell asleep like many of us do watching TV on the couch. He woke up around 9 p.m. and left to go visit his mom, who unfortunately is suffering with dementia. He messaged Maggie, but she never got back to him. And when he returned home, he couldn't find her or Paul in their home. So he went out to the dog kennels that were on the same property and came upon a horrible scene. The police, recognizing his last name, decided to bring in Sled to take over the case. Sled is South Carolina's lead policing agency, basically a state-level FBI. He drops hints on the 911 call and to the police officers and the SLED investigators that he believes that this double murder on his property was a revenge killing for the horrible death of Mallory Beach in that boating accident years before. So the first question that came to mind for me is, why two years later? Don't you think if someone was going to teach Paul a lesson and have that rage inside of them to carry out this plot, wouldn't they be a heck of a lot more rageful and angry closer to the time that Mallory died? Why allow all this time to go by? Also, how the heck would they know where Paul would be that night? Because that's not where Paul was supposed to be. We'll find out later that Alec actually invited his wife and his son to meet him at the property that day. And remind me, is this property their main This is not their main place that they live. No, it sounds like this is kind of Alex's home base. But I guess when you have a lot of money, you can be at any of your many properties whenever the mood strikes you. Got it. Through social media, it would not be that hard to track down where Paul was as he thankfully, and you'll know why I'm saying thankfully later, was constantly using Snapchat. But even if this vigilante killer wanted to punish Paul, what about Maggie? And the thing is, Paul was like this big party boy. And so he would be pretty easy to spot out and about. I'm sure it was like, hey, Paul's going to be at this party. Someone truly wanted to get revenge for Mallory. It's odd. I agree. It really is. And I don't want to get too graphic here, but the scene of this crime would be deeply upsetting to anyone who came upon it. Both Maggie and Paul suffered multiple gunshot wounds. Paul was killed with a shotgun and Maggie was killed with a rifle. It was truly a 
horrible scene, and Alec was visibly shaken when police arrived. At times, he was crying. But when reviewing the body camera footage, I found it really odd. One thing that he kept repeating, he told officers he had gone up to the bodies of Maggie and Paul, had seen them, had touched them, checked for a pulse even, but yet repeatedly asked law enforcement on the scene if anyone has checked on them and if they are dead. I again don't want to get too graphic here, but there is no way given the state of their bodies that anyone who came upon them and saw them would think that they had any chance of surviving these injuries. Now, could this be just a father and a husband in shock, not wanting to believe the scene in front of him to be true? Maybe he was disassociating to survive this traumatic event. Maybe. Or maybe this would be one of the many times that I believe Alec Murdoch intentionally and deliberately said things to distance himself from the crime, either emotionally or physically. SLED began investigating the murders of Maggie and Paul, but this wouldn't be the last time police were contacted by Alec Murdoch. On September 3rd, 2021, as law enforcement was busy already investigating these horrific murders, Alec Murdoch was being forced to resign from his family's law firm when it was discovered that he had misused millions of dollars of not only his client's money, like we talked about in episode one, but he had actually stolen from his family's law firm as well. And wouldn't you know it, with Alec backed into a corner, things around him crumbling, another 911 call was made by him. This time, Alec had been shot. He reported he was on the side of the road fixing a flat tire when someone pulled over. He thought maybe they were coming to help him. But could you believe that they actually shot at him? Just one day after all of his dirty dealings are found out by this law firm, he is the target of an attempted murder? And here's the thing. If this is true, Alec is right. Someone is intentionally targeting his family and taking out the people they felt were responsible for so many tragedies. But luckily, Alec miraculously survived this roadside attack with just a superficial head wound. But two days later, through his lawyers, Alec issued a statement that he had made decisions he regretted and was entering a rehab program. What decision did you regret, Alec? Stealing from your own family, stealing from the people who trusted you to represent them and their families in these civil cases, or is it something else that you're feeling regret for? Alec was indeed hiding something big because he was hiding that this was not a random act of violence against him or a targeted attack against his family like he was trying to get everyone to believe. It was an orchestrated murder-for-hire plot that he had orchestrated himself. Just when I think this case can't get any crazier, like details like this pop up and I'm just sitting here with my head spinning like, wait, what? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we've all heard about murder for hire, but this is certainly the first time that I've heard of someone hiring someone else to murder them. Do we know who this murderer who didn't like he didn't do his job? Right. He didn't do a very good job. Do we know who this is? You're going to get into it. We do, because Alec told Sled that he had asked his former client to kill him so that his son Buster could collect the $10 million life insurance payment that would be owed upon Alex's death. And this guy managed to give Alec a superficial face injury, correct? Yes. And I don't want to get too into it because we already know at this point that Alec will say and do just about anything to cover his own arse. I watched an interview with him after all of this murder of Paul and Maggie came out, and he said that he never knew about a life insurance policy, that he basically shot up into the air. This is his story. 
He shot into the air to kind of scare Alec off because he kept pressuring this thing. And then Alec fell because he was startled and hit his head. He's like, I never shot this man. He asked me to do this. I'm telling him he's crazy and he's lost his mind. And there's like other ways to go about this. And so to get him to kind of back off, I wanted to like do something that would startle him. And he's like, and then he just fell down. I don't mean to laugh, but like (laughs) the scene, I would love to be a bird in a tree watching this interaction. Shoot me. No fall <laughs> nine one one. and who knows what the real story is we have two men that are probably both trying to cover their butts in some way oh yeah we'll see what happens as he goes into trial and what he has to say about it but either way this is just it's ridiculous. odd <laughs> so these poor sled detectives are like okay things with this alec guy are getting wilder and wilder after his confession that he had hired someone in basically an insurance fraud scheme Not only do they announce that they're going to go back and investigate Gloria's death, but her family files a lawsuit for the settlement money that they had yet to see a penny of, like we talked about in episode one. So all of these things are happening in a very short window of time. Alec gets arrested on charges of fraud and conspiracy related to his suicide slash murder hit scheme. I'm not really sure even what to call it. fall. Yeah. Gravity was really working against him then. It's ridiculous. But either way, he they both agree he approached this man to basically do this horrible thing, whether he did it or not, or attempted it or not, and just has bad... I don't know. It's all very convoluted. But... There was a conspiracy involved to at least defraud the insurance company. But when his lawyers tell the judge that Alec was struggling with the grief over his son and wife's death and had been abusing oxycodone and under its influence when he had come up with this crazy plot, he was released on a PR bond. Do you know what a PR bond is? No. Well, this certainly would go back to how powerful this family was and how much pool they had. Because it basically means a personal recognizance bond. Wow, that's hard to say. Which means you don't have to pay anything at all. You're basically just let out with your promise that you're going to show up on your court date. This is something generally given to like completely nonviolent offenders. But let's keep in mind, even though he didn't shoot someone else or shoot himself in this particular scheme, this is a violent thing he was planning. Also, you're trusting Alex Murdoch to show up at court? I feel like this guy's just a loose cannon. Well, clearly. He did have to surrender his passport. And off he went to rehab in Florida. Alec wouldn't remain at rehab long, though, because on October 14th, 2021, Alec was arrested at the facility in Florida for fraud and taken back to South Carolina, where he was denied bond. Finally, the charges began stacking up against him. And whether it be for fraud, embezzlement or other crimes, he had a total of over 100 indictments, some of which we went through in episode one. So if you haven't listened to that, please go back and listen to that. It'll give you a very good history of the family and what Alec has been getting up to at this point. And trust me, it's a lot. 406 days after the murder of Paul and Maggie Murdaugh, Alec was officially indicted with two counts of murder. Prosecutors believed he had fatally shot them both on their own family property. He pled not guilty, and his attorneys immediately start pressing for a speedy trial, stating basically that he is so innocent that he wants to get this trial over with so that the police can go out and find the people that truly did this to his wife and son. I wonder what it's like to represent a lawyer, to be a lawyer being represented by a lawyer. Because, yeah, Alec knows all these terms like speedy trial. I'm over here like, I know we have the right to a speedy trial. 
I mean, granted, he's been in jail for quite some time at this point. So I think it probably had something to do with being a little self-serving and his overly confident ass thinking that he could be found not guilty or acquitted of all of this. And so he wanted to get himself get one thing out of the way so he can deal with the other hundred crimes he's in jail for. And that brings us to probably one of the most publicized trials I have lived through in my lifetime, coming second, in my opinion at least, only to the OJ trial. I was literally going to say OJ Simpson was probably number one. Well, you got to remember the white Bronco. I mean, (laughs) that chase was crazy. I watched a lot of the trial back, and instead of dissecting it piece by piece, I'm going to save you guys the torture I went through listening to all of that. I'm going to present the major pieces of evidence that swayed the jury and, in my opinion, sealed Alec's conviction. I want us to discuss them as if we were on the jury, Annie. How would we interpret it? And if you think that there was enough here to tie Alec to these murders. But first, let me preface this by saying what they don't have in evidence. DNA or blood evidence. Nothing that concretely ties Alec Murdoch through DNA or blood to being the shooter on June 7th. Let's first discuss Maggie's manicure. Oh, we're starting with the nails. We are. Okay, okay, I'm here for it. You know, I perked up a little bit when I heard this. (laughs) There was a piece of evidence that was presented, and it was that there was DNA. It wasn't Alex. It was to an unknown male, and this was found under Maggie Murdaugh's fingernails. Obviously, we've covered cases before where we talk about fingernail DNA, We know that this is often a sign of a defensive attack. You scratch or fight back against the person that's coming after you. But the defense attorneys for Alex said that this supported their theory that there was two shooters that night and neither were Alec. They also went on to point out that Maggie had told people she had gotten her nails done that day, so her nails had to be clean before returning home. Sled DNA analysis said that the DNA under the nails can be picked up at any time from touching something or someone, and that the male DNA could have even come from the nail salon itself. There is no way to test where or when or how that DNA got under her nails. So this was a piece of evidence that I could see working in both ways, right? For the defense, of course they're going to use this as she was fighting off her attacker, but I'm going, are you really fighting off an attacker? Let's remember that Maggie was shot with a rifle. Like, that can be a far distance. She doesn't have to be close to that attacker. No. Close enough to get the DNA underneath her fingernails. Well, and let's be honest. A rifle is not a small gun. So she is at least, not to be gruesome here, a couple feet away from the person that's doing this when they shoot her. And I also feel like if she had the attacker's DNA underneath her fingernails, she would have, like, broken nails. She would have more defense wounds. It's not like she was tickling his back. (laughs) And she's like, here, I have your skin underneath my nails now. Like, I feel like they would have more. If she was fighting for her life, there would be other signs. I'm with you on that. I definitely understand why the defense used it on their side, though, because. They have to use everything they have. Yeah, they are. They're the ones fighting for Alex's life here, and it's going to be a tough road for them. But definitely that DNA, it planted a little bit of suspicion when I first heard about it especially because they were killed with two guns and in such a short amount of time, there was that suspicion in me of like, even if Alec was involved, was somebody else there? The difference of the guns, because there was a rifle and a shotgun. Mm -hmm. That is so odd to me. That shows there has to be two people there. There's no way someone's going to have a gun on the right side of their jeans and a gun on the left side and go, I'm going to use two different guns unless they're trying to purposely throw them off. I'm sure we'll get into that. 
And especially if you're an attorney that knows what these investigators are going to be looking for at the scene of a crime. Yeah. Because you have sat there and defended these people before or been the prosecutor. I shouldn't say he's been the defense attorney. He's usually the prosecutor in these cases. So he knows what he's looking for to get someone convicted. So does he also know the reverse of that, of how to stage it? So oh, I'm it sure. looks like he's yeah. not the person. Yeah, that's a good point. Let's talk about the testimony of Michelle Shelley Smith. She was the caretaker of Alex's mom, and she testified that she saw a blue tarp, or maybe it was a rain jacket, but something with that waterproof material, wadded up, and Alec was kind of carrying it bundled up up into his mom's residence several days after the murder. But what's suspicious about this is a blue rain jacket was later found wadded up into an upstairs closet inside that mom's home, and it tested positive for gunshot residue. So we have an eyewitness who doesn't really have anything to gain from saying this. It's not someone who's sitting in jail trying to get a plea deal or something. And she's telling police, I saw him walk up with this thing. They go and investigate it and find exactly what she said they were going to find. With gunpowder residue. Dare I say that's the smoking gun. <laughs> I've always wanted to say that. <laughs> well, is it? I mean, I want to play both sides of this. They're big hunters as well. So they're probably always covered in gunpowder. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the dog kennels, they were hunting dogs and they had a bunch of them. Absolutely. Tons of hunting dogs. This was basically their property to do these, you know, hunts with their family and friends. Okay. So I can see how maybe in his mind, he's like, I got to get rid of anything that looks suspicious. She also testified that Alec Murdaugh tried to convince her after the murders that he had been at his parents' home for 30 to 40 minutes. Not the 15 to 20 minutes that she recalled him actually being in the home. He then brought up how expensive her wedding must be that's coming up and offered to help her out with the costs of it. Red flag. He's basically saying, you turn your cheek the other way, honey. Yeah, this guy's used to throwing money around and getting whatever he wants. Does not surprise me that he's kind of maybe saying, you know, turn the other way and I'll help you with this expensive wedding that you have coming on. Well, let's and call it's it what it is. It's a bribe. It is a bribe. I couldn't think of the word. Well, here's something that's going to really back up her claims because we all know eyewitness testimony is not always the best because people are going to have their prejudice. They're going to have time in between when this conversation or when they saw this and the trial where they might misremember something or be swayed. Well, data retrieved from Alex's vehicle would later back up her testimony. It shows that Alex's car went into park at his mother's residence at 9.22 p.m. and comes out of park at 9.43 p.m., which is just 21 minutes in total. Wow. That truck data, that, that'll get you in the end. There's been a couple cases where the, they look at the data the trucks or some kind of smart car has and it ends up burning the person. Devil's advocate in me is like, okay, I'm so bad at time. Who knows? Is that going to play a huge part in this? I see where you're going with that. Because it's the difference of potentially only nine minutes. If it was 21 minutes on the car, he says 30 to 40. Let's go 30. Nine minutes? I don't know. Let's pause that because we're going to touch base on it. And I think it's going to clear it up a little bit when we get into... I'll take that little thought and put a thumbnail in it Perfect. on the board. Yeah. Put it on our <laughs> our evidence board. Let's get into the testimony from their housekeeper, Bianca Simpson. She testified that Alec was the one that asked Paul and Maggie to come to the property that night. I told you this earlier when we were discussing this case, but she also backed up this claim. And you'll see it through texts, evidence, and everything that this was true. 
what she said was accurate because Maggie ends up texting, I believe it was her sister, saying, you know, Alec's parents aren't doing very well. We're going to have to go back to this property. Alec wants us all to come there tonight. The only person that didn't receive a text invite was Buster, the other son. I was going to ask, where's the where's Buster at during all of this? Well, his dad's not texting him. I'll just leave it at that for right now. Suspicious. He also asked her to clean the home after the murders. Mm. Which is baffling to me why the home wasn't also secured. To give a better understanding, we'll put a picture of this on our Instagram. Where the murders happened was down by the dog kennels, but it is still on the same property as the home itself. Yes, there's quite a distance away. It takes about one minute, literally one minute to drive, but I imagine a little bit longer to walk, obviously, between the dog kennels and the main house. But it, it was surprising to me since they're on the same property and we all know when the death happens, you look at the inner circle, right? The family, the people closest to you, they lived on that property. So you would think that that would also have been closed off and maybe some investigative work done. But nope, Bianca was allowed to clean the home. It's also weird to me that like you just lost your wife and your youngest son and you're concerned about cleaning the house. I know everyone grieves differently. I'm not going to say maybe that's not a coping mechanism to go in there and want to scrub your floors really good and get the house clean. But that should be like a low priority, especially if you already have a housekeeper there. And it's right? not like he has to return to this house and see, again, not to be morbid, but if this had happened inside the home, of course I would understand wanting to have everything cleaned and carpets ripped out and all that kind of stuff before returning. They have multiple homes they can go to. He doesn't. That and, is and, odd. and it didn't happen in the home. So what's the purpose, to your point, what's the purpose of having it clean? Go somewhere else because you don't even want to be by it. I understand that completely if he had gone to a different property. But why ask Bianca to clean just a few days after the murder? But here's where her testimony really stuck out to me. She said that Alec came to her in August of 2021, which was about the same time that SLED investigators confronted Alex about that video. Don't worry, we're going to get to that video. But they had confronted him about it, and Alec allegedly told Miss Simpson, Hey, B, I need to talk to you. Come here and sit down. She said that Alec indicated that he had a bad feeling and that something just wasn't right. He said a video had been discovered, didn't elaborate more than that, and quickly followed that statement with the question, You remember that Vineyard Vine shirt I was wearing that day? You know, I was wearing that Vineyard Vine shirt the day of the murders. She testified she never responded to his question because she knew he was wearing a blue polo shirt that day. She remembers it because she had fixed the collar of it for him on the day of the murders when he left in the morning. Oh, so he's doing that thing where he goes, this is the detail I want you to really remember. It's the same thing with the 30 to 40 minutes that he was supposedly at his mom's and saying, Remember, I was here for 30 to 40 minutes. I've never watched Star Wars, but it's like he's trying to like Jedi mind trick these people. <laughs> I don't even know if I'm using that reference correctly. <laughs> don't come for me, Star Wars fans. I'm sorry. It, that's kind of what it seems like is he's like, if I tell you this, it will somehow pick its way into your brain and you will forget the truth. And all you will remember is my word. Yeah, too bad he's surrounded by some smart women. Heck yeah. Who he cannot be tricked by a murder. You go, girls. Well, Alec is seen in a video earlier that day taken by Paul. He's standing by a tree. I'm not really sure what they're doing. But Alec is wearing a blue polo and khaki pants. Yet when police arrive at the scene, Alec is in a white t-shirt and shorts. 
The blue polo shirt is never recovered. And that video that Paul captured Alec in with that same blue polo, it was recorded at 7.56, just an hour before the murders would take place. I've seen that video. It's almost like they're pulling down a tree and kind of like messing around and you can see Alec in it. It's just kind of one of those videos that like at the time doesn't mean anything. But looking back, you're like, you did a full wardrobe change, buddy. Absolutely. He did. Now let's get to that video. This to me and probably to anyone who covered this was the big damning piece of evidence in this trial. Remember that Alex said the night of the murder, he had dinner with Maggie and Paul, then he falls asleep watching TV on the couch, then goes to his mother's house and returns home to find the bodies of his murdered wife and son? He said he never went down to the kennels with them. But at 8.44 p.m., Paul takes a video for his buddy, whose dog they were watching. Again, they had a huge property, a huge dog kennel, and they were watching one of his friend's dogs. The dog apparently had gotten some sort of cut or injury to its tail. And the guy said, hey, can you take a picture, snap a video of it for me? I want to check it out. As Annie and I are dog owners, we get this. If someone was like dog sitting Gracie and they said, oh, she has a cut. I want you to zoom in, show me. Like how bad is it? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Do we need a vet? It makes total sense that he wanted to see, you know, some pictures of what was going on with his beloved dog. And Paul was doing what he was asked of him. But in the background of this video, you can hear Alec Murdoch talking to his wife, Maggie. What really stood out to me after listening to it two more times than I care to admit is Alec throughout the entire trial and apparently Paul's whole life referred to Paul as Papa. And there was his booming southern voice in the background of this video. And what do you hear? Papa! So there's no way he can say it was someone else because that's his nickname for his son. Correct. He's also talking to his wife, Maggie, and multiple people who are closely tied to the family testified that, yes, this is indeed Alec's voice in the background. This places Alec at the scene of the crime just five or six minutes before it's believed that Maggie and Paul were killed. They estimate the time of death because this is around the time where almost simultaneously both of their phones lock and would not be unlocked again. That is so crazy to me. Once again, this innocent little thing that's going on in the background puts Alec at the scene of the crime after he denied for so long that he wasn't there. To your point, Annie, it's really interesting what would seem like a mundane task, yet unbeknownst to him, he might have been collecting evidence that would later be used when they were investigating his murder. That's a chilling thought. It's mind-blowing. It like makes me question everything I'm doing, and I'm not even a murderer. I have no desire ever, but I'm like, Everything I do could come back one day and haunt me. Yeah. I mean, I make fun of like conspiracy theorists sometimes. They're like, oh, the government's watching. It's like, well, then don't do anything worth watching. Who cares? But yeah, somebody is is watching. This is a good point. And and sometimes it's used in cases like this to bring around hopefully justice. Was this video uploaded? You said he sent it to his friend. It was a Snapchat video. How did they retrieve that? I'm sure they just subpoenaed Snapchat for the record. That makes sense. Because once it's on the internet, friends, it's there forever. Cell phone evidence. This is what really got to me. So we already went over the fact that the vehicle data showed that Alec was lying about the time he spent at his mother's house the night of the murders. 
But let's dive a little deeper into that timeline because I want to see what sticks out to you, Annie. And if you guys, listeners, want to follow along with us, I will put a link to the WJCL 22 article by Graham Cawthon. I hope that's how I pronounce your name that I'm going to be referencing for this timeline in the show notes. So if you're not driving, click right on the show notes and you can follow along with us because these times they get very specific. And if you're anything like me, I like to transpose numbers once they're in my head and it can get a little confusing. But I think it's worth going over because this is the part that really, really stuck out to me of Alec, you are a dirty, rotten scoundrel and a liar. I'm not going to go over every point that happened because they start this transcription at the beginning of the day. I just want to highlight what the data shows happening leading up to the murders and the events that followed. But first, I need to point out that from 8.09 to 9.02 p.m., the day of the murders, Alec's phone records show that he has taken no steps, indicating he was not moving with the phone in his possession during this time. He said he was asleep, right? 8.38 p.m., Paul's phone places him at the kennels. At 8.40 p.m., Paul calls that longtime friend, Rogan Gibson. That's the guy whose dog they were dog-sitting to tell him, hey, buddy, like, uh, something's wrong with your dog. And that call lasted around 4 minutes, 14 seconds or so. So right after he gets off the call, Paul then tries to initiate a FaceTime with Gibson, which if someone said, send me a video of your dog, I'd probably do the same thing. Let me just FaceTime you real quick. Right. Same. But must not have really got a very good connection because that call only lasted 11 seconds. And here's where Paul records that video for Gibson of the dog. He's down at the kennel showing off the dog's injury to his tail. So we are looking at about almost 8.45 when this video is being recorded. We are also so thankful that he didn't answer the FaceTime because if Gibson would have answered that FaceTime, that video never would have been taken. So thank you, universe. Absolutely. At 8.48, Paul sends an iMessage to, let's just say Megan, because she's not really involved in this. And in it, he said, A Star Was Born is the movie. She had asked him early in the day for movie recommendations because I guess she wasn't feeling that great. Immediately after, she responds to Paul, no, I need something happy. I don't like watching sad movies. At 8.49, Paul Murdoch's phone is locked. At 8.49 and 26 seconds, Maggie Murdoch's phone unlocks and she reads her final text message that she would ever read. In that same minute, she reads the text, must be a quick reader, because her phone is locked and it will not be unlocked again until it's found by police a quarter mile away the next afternoon. In that same minute, Rogan, concerned about his dog, texts Paul about the dog's tail. He says, see if you can get a good picture of it. Marianne wants to send it to a girl we know that's a vet. Get him to sit and stay. He shouldn't move around too much. You know what that tells me? He never got the video. Oh. That Paul wasn't able to send it off before his phone locked literally 20 seconds before Rogan sent this message. Oh, I didn't even think about that. The text to Paul goes unread. This is 34 seconds after Paul's phone locked for the final time. At 8.53, Maggie's phone, the orientation changes. So that woke up the screen to activate its Face ID security feature, right? You know, you move your phone at all and it pops up, show me your face. And then you feel really bad if you don't have makeup on and it can't recognize you. But that's beside the point. <laughs> it feels like an attack every time. <laughs> every time. Unfortunately, the phone remains locked, which implies that it was picked up by someone other than Maggie. 
From 8.53 to 8.55, Maggie's phone would record her taking 59 steps or at least somebody that has control of her phone because if it was Maggie, why wouldn't her phone open when it saw her face? From 9.02 to 9.06, Alex Murdoch's phone comes back to life recording 283 steps in roughly four minutes. That's 70 steps per minute. So whatever he was doing, he was doing he was in booking a hurry. It. Yeah. He was, he was jogging. I dare say that's a jog. He was very busy in those four minutes. At 9.04, Alec Murdoch calls his wife's phone. There is no record of this call when the data is extracted from Alex's phone. It only shows on his wife's. Oh, like he deleted it from his phone? Bing, bing, bing. At 9.05, Alec calls his father, Randolph. The call lasts 18 seconds, so maybe he didn't pick up. Again, there is no record of this in the data extracted from Alec's phone. A minute later, the orientation of Maggie's phone changes again, which means someone is holding it, picking it up, moving it in some way. Yet a minute earlier, she didn't answer the call from her husband. In that same moment at 9.06, Alec Murdoff calls his wife's phone again. There is no answer. Again, the record of that call is not shown in that data extraction from Alex's phone, just Maggie's. Just one minute later, Alex's vehicle leaves the Moselle house, which is the name because when you're rich, you can name your home. He leaves the Moselle house and heads to his mom's residence. One minute later at 9.08, Alex's vehicle drives by where Maggie's phone would be found the following day. After passing the location, the vehicle quickly and rapidly increases speed. So that tells me he tossed her phone and drove away. That's what I'm thinking. Just seconds later, I'm talking 20 seconds after he is now gunning this vehicle, Alec texts his wife's phone, going to check on M. Maybe that's his name for his mom, or maybe it's a Southern thing for them, right? Going to go check on them. I don't know. Yeah, that, yeah, that makes sense. Going to check on him. Be right back. Two minutes later, Alec calls his son, Buster. The call lasts for 60 seconds, so it sounds like they talked because I've never had a phone call last 60 seconds before someone's picked up or it's gone to voicemail. But yet again, this call to Buster does not show up on the record of Alex's phone. About 12 minutes after this, he arrives at his mother's property. Alex's vehicle pauses halfway up the driveway and parks. The speed of the trip is faster than any other trip he took that day. And remember, earlier that morning, he was confronted at the law firm about stealing money. He probably wasn't leaving that meeting feeling too good. It would make sense for him to kind of be in a rage or a panic and speeding or not really paying attention to street laws, (laughs) if you will. But yet... (laughs) He is going almost 74 miles per hour on average on the way to his mom's house. That's fast. He is trying to get the hell out of Dodge. Exactly. We've already talked about this. He was there for about 21 minutes when his car was put into park at the property to the time that he leaves. Once he gets back into his vehicle around 947, Alec texts Maggie, call me, babe. But of course, that text would go unread. 15 minutes after that, Alec returns to Moselle and places his vehicle into park at the main house. On the drive back from his mom's residence, the vehicle reached speeds of up to 80 miles per hour, but yet the max speed limit throughout that entire journey 
was 55 miles per hour. See, that also shows me that his mind is elsewhere and he's just speeding. Like he's not even realizing how fast he's going because he's so distracted by something. Well, here's what also really stood out to me. A minute later, you know, he pulls in, he parks his car. Then he takes his car out of park. Ten seconds after that, he puts his car back into park. He does this four times. Puts it in park, takes it out of park. Puts it in park, takes it out of park. Back and forth. The car's not moving. So after going from park to neutral to drive to reverse to did it all over the place in the course of a minute, he finally puts it into park. And three That's minutes- odd to me. I wonder if he started noticing the computer system in his truck. And he was like, oh, shit, I'm in park. Now I'm moving. And he started noticing something on the dashboard recording all of that. Do you think? No. Okay. Okay. I'll get into my theory about why this is happening. Because that's really standing out to me. It really weird out to me, too. At 10.04 p.m., Alec takes the vehicle out of park again. He spent around three minutes in total either in his car or at the main house of Moselle. At 10.05, Alec Murdoch's vehicle drives down to the kennels from the main house. Again, when he arrives, Alec puts the vehicle into park by the kennels and does that little shifteroo thing. Park, not park, park, not park. I want you guys to hear this, and there's an emphasis on this. He got to the kennels at 10.05 and 55 seconds. So let's just round up and say 10.06. At 10.06 and 14 seconds, Alec places the call to 911. That's pretty speedy, considering it's dark. He knew something was there. Yeah. And also, as soon as you get out of your car, yeah, you shut your door, you're walking around, maybe you're yelling for Maggie, Papa, you're walking around. That right there is like a minute at least. Is that even a total of 14 seconds? Is that what I'm seeing? Roughly. 14 seconds. As soon as you hop out of that car, you're like, 911, we have an emergency. Mm -hmm. That is such a red flag. At 10.11, Alec takes the vehicle out of park at the kennels and returns to the main house. At first, I was like, wait, what? He left? But then I listened to that 911 call again, and it made sense with his story. He had told the dispatcher and the officer that came to the scene, he's like, I have a gun on me. And he told them that the reason for having that gun and going back to the main house was he didn't know. I mean, it's dark. He didn't know if the people that had done this were still there. So he wanted to go get a gun to, to defend himself. That makes sense. Totally fair. Yeah. He is at the main house for a little less than two minutes. It seems like a quick amount of time, but I'm trying to think how fast I would be moving if I just came upon my son and my wife's dead bodies. And I get adrenaline to protect yourself. I absolutely get like, I need to go get a gun. There's nothing I can do here. Two minutes sounds like not a long time, but you can do a lot in 120 seconds. We have already seen he is quite crafty at doing quite a few things in just Three or four seconds. I'm going to give him a little bit of grace here because I absolutely think that if I stumbled upon two bodies and I knew I had weapons in the house, I would absolutely run. He probably knows exactly where his guns are because, you know, that's his house and he's a hunter and all that kind of stuff. So I would I I think that to me isn't super suspicious. It's quick, but, you know, the adrenaline pulsing through his body is probably making him a little speedy. And my point is not saying that two minutes is too long or not enough time to get a gun. I absolutely agree with you. It is. But is it also enough time to get rid of evidence? And to that, I would say yes. He can change his clothes in two minutes, especially if he had this planned out. He has his, he has a clothes sitting right there on the table. He's like, Bianca, don't touch those. Yeah. Well, I'm (laughs) going to have you clean them later. 
Well, let's keep in mind that the housekeeper had already left for the day after she made them dinner. So it is just him in this property. So he's truly there alone. Yeah. Correct. Okay. Unless there's some vigilante killers on the loose on the property as well. But hmm. so at 1014, Alec Murdoch's vehicle returns to the kennels. Again, it only takes about a minute drive to get from the main house down to the kennels. And at 1025, because this house is kind of out in the boonies, at 1025, the sheriff's department arrives to the kennels. And that's where we see all that body cam footage of him crying and going on. What are the things that stick out to you about this timeline? Okay, well, the thing that I keep having a question about is whenever you say the data was extracted from Alex's phone, are you saying that just if you look at his call log, there's nothing there? Correct. Because that data has to be stored somewhere, right? It was. It showed on all the people's phones that he called that night except his. It means that he manually deleted that he had made that call. I feel like that's such a dumb move. Like, he knows that's going to be on their phones. He knows. It's interesting, but this family also has a history of covering for each other, do they not? Or at least allegedly has a history of covering for each other. Well, that's also what stood out to me was whenever he called Randolph. Randolph is the guy they call when shit hits the fan and they they need something fixed. Think about whenever Paul had that car accident. Randolph was called. The boating accident. Randolph was called. I do agree with you normally. Where I'm not going to agree with you is we have to remember this is a couple years later. Randolph at this time was basically not doing well. He has since, like RIP Randolph, he has since passed. His parents were not oh, in good condition. Oh, so he wasn't coming to the scene. Oh, absolutely Okay, not. okay. No, he wasn't going anywhere. Maggie had made reference when she was talking to her sister earlier in the day that his parents aren't doing well. I think he wants us to go all be together on the property. That's what he keeps asking me is I need to go to this house in particular today. Got it. Okay. The other thing that's odd to me is Maggie's phone. Well, first of all, all the steps that were being recorded while it was clearly not in her hands, 59 steps, and then it ends up like a quarter of a mile away. Like that phone was definitely in someone else's pocket and then tossed, but that doesn't make sense to me. Like, was he panicking? And he's like, I got to get her phone because maybe something's off. I don't know. Guys, I'm going to get a little bit graphic here. Here's my thought. Her phone, maybe he doesn't know like the password, the digit password to get in. But maybe he assumed, if he is the killer, that he could use their face ID to get into their phones. Unfortunately, that would not be the case because of the method used to murder them. I don't think a phone would be recognizing their face. And I'll just say that. So he might have gone, I I can't delete what I wanted to delete. I just have to get rid of this. And that would certainly explain why all of a sudden he's driving along at the same time, tosses the phone potentially out the window, and then speeds up. That does make sense. And maybe he had already deleted the phone calls from his phone. And then he went to get Maggie's and was like, oh, her phone's locked. Well, and if we go back to this timeline, from the time that he called, he called 911 at 10.06. They did not get there until 10.25. His phone shows us what steps he was and where he was, but it doesn't show us what he was using that almost 20 full minutes to delete off his own phone or what evidence he had the opportunity to hide in 20 minutes. It's so unbelievable, but it's just factual. Like we have the numbers, we have the timeline right here. And I'm still like, there's no way this actually happened in real life. We talked a little bit about your theory of why he was parking or and then like unparking, parking and unparking. Yeah. What do you think about that? This is where like the psychologist in me, which I am not, 
I have no credits to my name whatsoever. I think I'm an armchair detective and an armchair psychologist or a profiler (laughs) of some sort just because I've read one book. But what it kind of rung true to me, at least, was that he keeps doing this. Every destination he gets to, he's parking, then, no, 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 I'm taking it out of park, whether he's putting a drive or reverse or something else. I think it's showing him second guessing himself. Should I be doing this? Well, or what, you know, should I be going here? Well, what if they, uh, it's like he's having to act so quickly on the fly and he's hesitating. Like to me, that shows a moment of hesitation, not necessarily in what he's already done, because all of these parking things happen after we know that Maggie and Paul are already deceased, but he gets to his mom's house. He doesn't even pull all the way into the driveway. He goes halfway. Then he's parking. Do I go in? Should I involve them? Okay, no, 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 I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I shouldn't. I'm putting it in reverse. Oh, no, no, I have to. I have to have an alibi. I'm going to put it in park. I'm going to go in. Well, uh, but then I'm involving extra people. No, no, no. Okay, come on out. Go inside. Keep your cool. You got this. Go inside. He does this over yeah. and over. Yeah. And it makes I totally sense agree too. With that. It's like he returns back to the property. He goes to the main house. Does the parking on parking, parking on parking thing. I wonder if he's like, should I go just immediately down and find the bodies or is it going to be more credible if I go into the house and I say that I couldn't find them so then I went looking for them and stumbled across this crime scene it's almost like he had this planned out in his mind and then when it was actually happening he started to your point second guessing himself I like that theory I can support that so yeah I do I can get behind that theory of him second guessing himself I mean I would be jeez you get that far in, you, you've already done this horrible act to people that you're supposed to be protecting. I honestly, I Googled, I was like, was there something wrong with his car that night? Because I'm like, maybe like, this makes no sense to me until you think of it almost as maybe something he wasn't even consciously aware he was doing. It was just like a nervous a tick physical, or something. Yeah, yeah. like a physical yeah. representation of what was going on in his mind at the time of no, 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 no. Okay, no. Yep. I got to do this. No, no, no. Come on, Alec. You got this. And that is kind of, it almost shows us what was going on in his head. There is something not right. So with this evidence, remember, we have no DNA tying him. I mean, obviously his DNA is at the crime scene because it's his property. But there's no blood evidence that ties him to it. He is not found with any blood evidence on his clothing. Again, What did you do in that two minutes that you were at the house? And what did you do in the 20 minutes? Could he have put clothes down by the kennels in preparation for this? And here's what I think. I don't think that he changed his clothes in the house. I think it had to probably happen down at the kennels. And the reason he changed it was he put that blue raincoat on in case any blood went on him. He could easily rinse off that kind of material Whereas the cotton polo, of course, would absorb any blood spatter, anything like that, that would kick back on him. And because it is that like waterproof material, that gunshot residue is not going to be on his clothing. It's going to be on a piece of clothing that in two minutes he could easily take off. That two minutes that he's at the house would not be a very long time to remove a jacket. That is so freaking true. Wow. Okay, so do you think that he had two different guns then? Since they were both shot with different guns, do you think it was just him he acted alone? Yes. 
And I think the timeline shows that. It is such mm-hmm. a small window of time. Unless he had this very meticulously planned, and I don't believe that he did. I really don't. I think all these strange kind of panicky hesitation things are just showing that this is a man. Well, I'm going to pause because I don't want to tell you what I think his motive is. You're playing jury just along with me. So let's go mm-hmm. back to just the evidence and then we'll get into motive. If you were on the jury, knowing that there's no blood spatter evidence that connects him, no DNA, which way would you have cited, guilty or non-guilty? Because truly, a lot of this is circumstantial and witness testimony evidence. It is. I'm saying guilty because that timestamp of him being at the kennel, thanks to that Snapchat video, to me, it seals the deal. He claimed over and over again that he wasn't there, and then the evidence says otherwise. Why else would you lie about it? You could easily say, I was there. I was helping with the dogs and then I went up to the house and I came back and this like there's so many things to go around that. But the fact that he's like, I wasn't there and he was case closed. Fair. I think I would have found him guilty. And here's something I don't care to admit. I don't know if it would be based on the evidence solely or the fact that they proved so many times Alec was dumb enough and cocky enough to actually take the stand which I think really hurt him. But when he took the stand, of course he's going to get cross-examined. And they pushed on how many times have you lied? And the judge even allowed them to talk about his previous crimes and alleged stealing money from his own family and what was going on. And the judge didn't allow that into court to like go against his character. It wasn't like a character indictment of Alec. But I'm sure the jury, we're all human, is going, this man lies all the time. He He's allowed, probably lying right now on course. the stand. The judge allowed it because they needed to be able to establish motive. And that's what the prosecutors were saying was this was financially motivated because everything was crumbling around him. This was, you know, the acts of a desperate man. And so I understand why they allowed that evidence in. But I certainly, if I was listening to this man, tell me over and over and over again how much not only he lies, but to people that didn't do anything wrong, didn't deserve this. Like, again, if you think about episode one, he took money from people that had passed away and their families. He also, this is his family's law firm. He's willing to steal from his own family to, again, keep up this illusion of grandiosity, right? So I hate to admit it, but I would have said guilty, yes, based on evidence, but also his character. I could Mm -hmm. not believe, because he's shown repeatedly when his back is up against a wall, he will do absolutely anything to like weasel himself out of it or at least say something crazy and tell these like fantastical tales to get himself out of it or at least, you know, put off repercussions for as long as possible. Yeah. And I think that's a fair thing to say, because at the end of the day, you do have to look at that person as a whole. I mean, You're about to either put him away for life or let him walk. So you have to encompass kind of the whole circular part of who he is, his past, his relationships, and then look at the evidence. So I think that's a normal thing because I would do the same. But to me, it's just it's him saying he wasn't there and he's there. What about motive? What do you think? Like, what's your theory on motive? Because I saw a lot of chatter online of people saying, yeah, I think he did it, but I cannot figure out why. I think the one theory that I saw online that was really interesting was that he had gotten into some kind of situation with his drug dealer. He was very open about his oxycodone use, which I felt was a little odd. Like he was said he was taking between 1,000 and 1,200 milligrams a day. 
And I'm like, okay, he's already right there trying to kind of make him look like a little bit, I don't know what the word is. Not of sound mind. Yes. Thank you. Not of sound mind. And then he kind of stopped talking about that. So one theory was that he had done a drug dealer dirty and they came for his family on the property that night. And he still had Buster who was living and didn't want to go on the stand and say it was the drug dealers because at that point, Buster's like out on his own. That was one theory I, I saw that was kind of interesting. I think he was just spiraling. He had lost so much and he needed some kind of pity from someone. And he thought the best way to do that was to take out his wife and son, which who thinks that? But look at his track record. I can sit here and be like, someone who loves their family wouldn't do that. I don't think, I don't know if he loved them or if he was just that selfish where he's like, I'm going to do this and lose them at what cost? He, I mean, it's un, it's unimaginable. What do you think? I agree with you. I think that he was a very desperate man. I think that he was being pushed by Mallory Beach's family lawyer to show his financial records. Three days after his son and wife were murdered, that was when he was supposed to come forward with his financial records in this Mallory Beach civil lawsuit. And those records would clearly indicate not only his debt, but his illegal profiting from clients and the law firm. He was also, like you said, abusing hard prescription drugs. I, for one, um, have never abused that drug well, or any drug, but I can't speak to like how much he was saying he was doing. But there's been a lot of doctors and professionals saying like, no, this is not possible. All this money he was saying that he was spending for drugs. If someone bought that much, they would have died because he was saying he was taking upwards at sometimes about 60 to 100 pills a day. It's crazy. But when he went to rehab, he obviously was tested. So we do know that he was using it. We can also go back to the story of the housekeeper finding prescription drugs taped on to the underside of his bed. We know that he was using. And maybe during his state of abusing drugs, he had this very delusioned way of thinking. And he thought, if Paul is gone, then no one is going to continue this wrongful death suit. I'm not going to have to turn in my financial records. So maybe in a very bizarre way, he thought Paul's going to jail because he had charges against him. But also, you have to remember the lawsuit was against Alec, not Paul. So we have a civil and a criminal trial going. So if Paul is gone, he doesn't face jail time. If Paul is gone, everyone looks at him to your point like, oh my gosh, this dad just lost his son. How could we possibly go after him? For the same loss that he's now experiencing, justice has been served. And for Alec, he doesn't he doesn't have to come forward with his financial records then. He can continue this lie that basically at this point is his entire existence and doesn't have to see his son go to jail. And I, I just don't know, like you said, if Alec Marta had love for his family. I kind of want to believe that he did. He was willing to die so that his son Buster could continue living this very comfortable life with his life insurance money. So if he's willing to sacrifice himself, it makes me think maybe there was love there, but a very strange love that prioritized money over like normal family relationships. Because I think I can't speak for Buster, but if you gave me the choice between my father and $10 million, I would choose my father. 10 times out of 10. Absolutely. But I think if you take into consideration that he was abusing drugs, that his whole life is crumbling around him, he was probably incredibly confused and a very desperate man. And there's this quote by James Baldwin. 
that I know I'm using out of context for what the quote was meant for, but it really just stuck out to me. And that quote is, the most dangerous creation of any society is the man who has nothing to lose. So while I'm sure this doesn't align, like I said, with the context that James Baldwin was using it in, Alec Murdar was that man. He was a product of his environment and this society and all of his family ideals of privilege and status and all of that and having to to really carry that on as his own responsibility. And he's watching everything he built, his fortune, his family name, even his family members, if you think about Paul potentially facing jail time and what happened with Stephen and Buster, they he knew at this point that they had reopened that case. They reopened it two weeks after the murders. So he's thinking, my whole family is is crumbling. And in a moment of reckless disregard for human life of the people that he says he loves, I think he chose to save himself by sacrificing them. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Well, the jury agreed with us, Annie. So pat on our backs. We solved the case. (laughs) The jury deliberated for less than three hours, which I have to say was very surprising. I could not believe it. Whenever I had my Google alerts going off, I was like, there's no way they have a they have a verdict. There's no way. And I hop on, it's like less than three hours. And I'm like, oh my gosh, Elise. I remember texting There was a lot of capital letters in our text there messages was. that day. There was. They found Alec Murdaugh guilty of both the murder of Maggie and of Paul. He was sentenced the next day by Judge Clifton Newman. And I want to read portions of this judge's sentencing statement because I, th- I think it so accurately summarizes the feelings of that many of us have that were fascinated and horrified by this case. It kind of showed the dichotomy of what this public had perceived as this powerful patriarch of the Murdoch family. And then yet there's this other side, this sinister side, the man that was capable of stealing, embezzling, and possibly aiding in the covering of crimes from his other family members' dirty dealings, and then ultimately killing his own wife and son. Judge Newman said, It is also particularly troubling, Mr. Murdoch, because as a member of the legal community, You have practiced before me, and we have seen each other at various occasions throughout the years, and it was especially heartbreaking for me to see you in the media as a grieving father who lost a wife and son, to being a person who was indicted, to the person who killed them. And then you have engaged in duplicitous conduct here in the courtroom, here on this witness stand, and as established by the testimony throughout the time leading from the time of indictment and prior to the time of indictment, To this current point in time, certainly you have no obligation to say anything other than saying not guilty. Obviously, as appeals are probably expected or absolutely expected, I would not expect a confession of any kind from you. In fact, as I have presided over murder cases over the past 22 years, I have yet to find a defendant who could go there, who could go back to that moment in time when they decided to pull the trigger or otherwise murder someone. I have not been able to get anyone, any defendant, even those who have confessed to being guilty, to go back and explain to me what happened at that moment in time when they opted to pull the trigger, when they opted to commit the most heinous crime known to man. Alec Murdaugh responded and said, I will tell you again that I respect this court. I am innocent. I would never under any circumstances hurt my wife Maggie and I would never under any circumstances hurt my son Papa. The judge replied, And it might not have been you. It might have been the monster that you have become when you take 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 opioid pills. And maybe you become another person. 
I've seen that before. The person standing before me is not the person who committed the crime, though it is the same individual. I can just imagine on that day, June 7th, when a lawyer is confronted and confesses to having stolen over half a million dollars from a client, and he has Mark Tinsley, quick pause, Mark Tinsley is the lawyer for uh, Mallory's family, and he has Mark Tinsley on his tail pursuing the death of Mallory Beach and having a father for the most part on his deathbed. I can imagine, or I can't really imagine, but I know that it had to be quite a bit going through your mind on that day. But amazingly, you come here and you testify that it was just another ordinary day, that my wife and son and I were just out enjoying life. It is not credible. It is not believable. You can convince yourself about that, but obviously you have the inability to convince anyone else about that. So if you have made any such arguments as a lawyer, you would lose every case and cases that you will not have the opportunity to argue anymore, except perhaps your own as you sit in the Department of Corrections. All right, Mr. Murdaugh, I sentence you to the State Department of Corrections on each of the murder indictments in the murder of your wife, Maggie Murdaugh. I sentence you for the term of your natural life, for the murder of Paul Murdaugh, who you probably loved so much. I sentence you to prison for murdering him for the rest of your natural life. As of this recording, Alec Murdaugh's defense team this week filed a notice of appeal for the conviction and the sentencing, but their reasoning for filing is not yet known. So scary squad, we've done our detective work. We've tried to put on our hats and pretend that we're part of this jury, but we want to hear from you. Would you have found him guilty? Do you have a different theory? Maybe you think it was someone else altogether, because I know my DMs on Instagram when I asked were full of some really interesting theories, and we want to hear them. So we're going to be posting the evidence that I talked about today on our Instagram at a case of the Sunday scaries. Please comment, have dialogue. I want to hear your guys' theories. We are not experts. We're just throwing around our own as well. So we want to share in that with you. Of course, we will continue to follow this case as it develops. But for now, I think I can speak for Annie and myself when we just send prayers for the families of Mallory Beach, Gloria Stattersfield, Stephen Smith, and the family and loved ones of Paul and Maggie Murdaugh. I hope they all get the answers they deserve, and I hope that in this life they can find some semblance of peace. We'll be back next week with Annie covering an all-new case, but as always, until then. <laughs> <laughs>